This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. This podcast is sponsored by Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Deuter has a history of first ascents and alpine routes. Their head of product development even climbed Everest once in jeans. Hashtag not fake news. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and ventilation. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. This podcast gets support from Gnarly Nutrition, one of the leading protein supplements that tastes way better than they need to because they use quality natural ingredients. So whether you're a working mom who runs circles around your kids on weekends or an unprofessional climber trying to send that 513 in the gym, Gnarly Nutrition has all of your recovery needs. The only question you need to ask yourself is, are you a sucker for anything that tastes like chocolate ice cream? Yeah, me neither. Gnarly Nutrition is designed to enhance your progress and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. Oh, cool. No. Oh, cool. No. Oh, cool. Really? Oh, cool. Who is Otsun? More than prolific crack climbing gloves, Otsun has been making innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance since 1998. Their climbing shoe designs are all original, developed and manufactured in Czech Republic, and 100% gender neutral. Beyond their sticky rubber, Otsun is renowned for their hardware, harnesses, and the biggest, lightest crash pad on the market. Find your new favorite climbing shoes and accessories at Backcountry, Moose Jaw, Camp Saver, and Amazon. I'm in the talks right now of starting kind of a pay-what-you-can climbing gym in the mission here. Misia and I have always talked about starting our own gym or something like that. And I don't know if that would ever happen, but I have some people interested in bringing this idea to life. Uh, a lot like the Memphis Rocks Gym, but when that sprouted up, I was like, oh, that idea I had long ago, it actually, it's working, you know? And I was like really excited to know that something like that was working. And I totally believe that it could happen here in San Francisco or in the Bay Area because, um, I mean, it's definitely a need for it. Do you have a gym membership? What do you pay monthly for it? Does it come with a shower, coffee bar, and bougie co-work space? With the rise of global climbing gyms popping up everywhere, from Brooklyn to the Bay, prices have inevitably gone up. 
indoor gyms are expensive to operate. From commercial real estate and property leasing to materials, insurance, staffing, and more, a lot of these costs get passed down to climbers. Gyms often exist in populated areas, like cities, in order to make it financially viable. Basic rules of supply and demand still apply, folks. And the privilege to be able to afford a day pass and an oat milk latte is not understated, nor unappreciated. But as for those who might not be able to afford a monthly membership, this has become a huge barrier to the sport. Who gets access to these spaces? Gyms like Memphis Rocks change the way we look at accessibility to climbing in a big way. They opened a gym in 2018 in one of the least likely places you might find climbers and instilled a pay-what-you-can ethic in order to challenge cultural, racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic burdens. I've worked in climbing gyms for a lot of my life, and so I've seen that if you build it, they will come. But I always was like, oh, I wish it was open to like other people. I remember going to Mission Cliffs as a kid, and I say as a kid, but I was at this point a teenager, and I had just learned about climbing from this Urban Pioneer program, and I went in there, and I still looked like a Mission District thug, you know? I, I totally was wearing all the clothes, had long hair, like had the little mustache. I, I like looked like a thug. I know what I looked like back then, and I didn't really get a lot of love. You know, I went in there and I kind of felt not welcome and uh, didn't feel like I belonged. And um, and so I really didn't go back. And it wasn't until I went to Yosemite Valley that I felt like I belonged somewhere because there was such a weird group of climbers out there. And I felt really welcome in that community, but I didn't feel welcome in the gym community early on as a kid. And so I, I've always wanted to change that and... At some point, I was like, oh, it would be so cool if you could have a gym where like would be welcome to anybody. And I mean, I've had so many different ideas, like kind of funded by the city or maybe some big corporation would want to get involved. But something where the kids would be able to come in and they would be provided gear to use for the day and they would be able to climb and like just get a sense of something different in their life and just climbing like really brings a pretty positive community together whereas I feel totally different than like the community that they might be involved in which is like neighborhood street gangs. Okay I'm on something. You are listening to the Love of Climbing podcast. It's a funny sounds I'm uncomfortable climbing. I was like, wow, this is the opposite of my podcast, but you know, here we go. <laughs> I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing. Is it to the, or to, do you say to For the Love of Climbing podcast? I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. Yeah, yeah, I see it. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sort of. It's a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability. Here's the show. <laughs> Easy cheesy. So yeah, I'm in the very initial stages of getting all that figured out with some other folks. And I think in the Mission District would be kind of cool. My name's Lucho Rivera, and, um, wait, what did you, 
Okay, my name's Lucho Rivera, and I'm from San Francisco. I pretty much climb primarily in California, in Yosemite, and the Sierra Nevada, and the Bay Area. Kind of just trying to climb as much as possible, and still trying to pursue that dream of full-time climbing as much as I can. Uh, probably have to go back to work at some point here soon, but at this point I'm just riding the fun train, trying to get out and climb as much as I can. Trying to get the most out of my my body while I'm still somewhat youthful. <laughs> For clarity, this episode was recorded during COVID times, and Lucho has a job. This podcast is in no way endorsing not getting an education, kids, and not getting jobs. Jobs are good. This podcast is a job. Also, is there like an unspoken time frame where dirtbagging and not working is socially acceptable? I've always just kind of wondered this. The high school program that first introduced me to climbing and the outdoors was this program called the Urban Pioneer Program, which is no longer in existence, but Another program called Get Out and Learn sprouted up right after, and it's more experience-based than just books and classroom teaching. And so they took us doing volunteer projects around the city with other public schools. We would run ropes courses. We would do like CPR and first aid training, go backpacking, rappelling, climbing. And that's kind of what really opened up my eyes to like the wilderness and the outdoors as a city kid. And the Get Out and Learn program is based on the Urban Pioneer. Two different names, same goal. Get the inner city kids outdoors and have them kind of think differently about education and how to learn. And then after that, all I wanted to do was just like get out of the city and climb peaks in the Sierra. And somehow that kind of led me to Yosemite Valley. And that's just kind of where I stayed for most of my youth. A lot has changed for wilderness education programs for at-risk youth, such as they legally can no longer leave your kids alone in the woods to fend for themselves. But the bedrock of these school and curriculum-based programs meant to promote emotional and physical well-being in kids was onto something. Most of us already understand the beneficial impacts of being in nature. As climbers and adult-ish people, we know this in our core. Experts today believe that kids face more challenges than ever. With a rise in school violence and mass shootings, awareness surrounding issues like mental health, racism, and gender, substance use, and an addiction to basically any screen we can hold in our hands. Around 30% of grade school kids in the U.S. suffer from chronic health conditions, as well as a general concern associated with poor behavioral, social, economic, and environmental detriments of health. But more time spent in green spaces encourages more than social skills and connectivity. And it opened a whole new world to Lucho that impacted him long after his high school days. I went back year after year throughout my 20s and in my 30s to staff for their wilderness trips. And I always thought that it was a really cool thing that they would bring their alumni back. We would go down to like Big Sur area, Los Padres Wilderness, and we would go out to the immigrant wilderness in Stanislaus, like in the Sierra. So two completely different places in California, both pretty rugged, both really beautiful in their own way. 
And these trips were like between eight to 12 days long. So it was a really significant time out in the wilderness. And so I loved staffing these trips and trying to be a good role model for these kids and sharing my stories with them. At the time, I was climbing a ton in Yosemite. And so like I could kind of blow them away with climbing Half Dome Fast or something or being up on El Cap or something I think a lot of kids never thought would be possible for them. But having someone be in their shoes and then evolve probably, I hope, gave them a little bit of like more motivation to get out of their routine of their city life. These students in these programs were like, I want to say kind of the outcasts in their classroom. They weren't quite making it. Some of them were really creative and some of them just didn't like sitting in a classroom for a bunch of hours a day. And they were just all special in their own way, but didn't really relate to traditional school life. And it was really cool to watch these kids all like have to work together in the wilderness. They would resist it, of course. And then by the end, there would be like so much bonding going on. The most unlikely kids out of the group would become best friends. It was super diverse. You know, you had kids from all over the city. And so totally different backgrounds. And they would all kind of hear about this program one way or another because they were at the point where they were going to either get put in a continuation program, which is basically like high schools that um, you only go to for like half the day. They give you some homework to do and most of the kids don't do it and you end up getting a GED. And so with this program, you could gain your credits through volunteer work. And the teachers really, like you could tell, cared about the students. There weren't many of these teachers, but they would dedicate so much of themselves to the students. And you could tell they had a lot of love for the kids. Every year, roughly 750,000 students who drop out of high school try and improve their educational and employment opportunities by taking the General Educational Development Test, or GED, long considered to be the equivalent of a high school diploma. It's a credential for students looking for a second chance. For many, receiving a traditional diploma is a rite of passage. But for others, it's not an option for a variety of reasons and often has little to do with learning ability. Programs like Urban Pioneers and Get Out and Learn give students who might otherwise not have the opportunity to jumpstart their future. And one of the key differences is having mentors who empower students to become ethical thinkers, agents of change, and more emotionally attuned. It was the same thing year after year. Every time I would go back and staff for these school groups, these kids that were looking for something different in their life and Hopefully, I propelled them to think outside the box, which is exactly what I needed at the time. I grew up in San Francisco's Mission District. I had a really blessed childhood, you know, like my dad wasn't around, but my mom definitely filled the role of both mother and father. I feel super lucky to have a loving parent my entire life. My grandpa was always there, you know, even though he was really old school, like he taught me a lot. And so really respected his role that he took on since my father wasn't around. And at a certain point, I feel like a lot of the friends I had made in elementary school going into high school were from the neighborhood. They were just kids that I grew up with. And we all kind of hung out together. And eventually, a lot of them were influenced by like gangs. And it didn't seem like a bad thing. Um, you know, I, I kind of knew at a certain point that it probably wasn't very good. Uh, 
there was one moment in my childhood, I think in sixth grade when I was walking home and these kids stopped me and like they wouldn't let me pass. So I like went around them and and I had this weird don't show fear mentality. And so I like walked past one of them and he like hit my shoulder and it just seemed like they were really looking to like mess with somebody, you know, didn't think about that at the time. I just kind of was like trying to hold my ground, (laughs) but I was like this tiny little kid and they were slightly older than me, but they were still teenagers also punks from the neighborhood really and one of them hit me and it was kind of a big surprise because they they were just looking to like start a fight it really like affected me because I thought I was immune to it but I wasn't you know and at the time my sister was dating this kid who was involved with the street gangs and she told him about it and he kind of went and seek this dude out and was like don't fuck with him ever again And I saw, like, kind of the power of neighborhood involvement and thought it would be a good idea to, like, hang out with people that might provide some sort of protection for me, you know? And so I started hanging out with a lot of these kids who were already kind of involved or starting to get involved in these neighborhood street gangs. The summer rolled around and I started hanging out with these people more and they would hang out with kind of the older crowd that sold drugs and just like were basically up to like no good. Slowly we started looking up to these people because I think a lot of us were searching for like male role models in our lives. A lot of us didn't have our parents or dads around, you know, and some of us came from super crappy home lives, which I wasn't one of those people, but... Bad choices were made and we were just kids, you know, we were just entering our teen years and we were like a little branch of this other bigger gang. And then we'd claim colors and that got us into trouble. It was just really messy. And I realized within a few years, I was like, oh, I made the wrong choice. You know, people don't realize how important decisions can be until they start making the wrong ones. Lucho wasn't all the way out of his depth yet. There was a fair amount of commitment at this point, but he could still leave. The problem was, he didn't know how. I wasn't in too deep yet, and I was like, if I continue down this path, I'm going to get to a point where it might be irreversible. You know, I could get injured, like I could get shot at. You know, we had been in like street brawls and witnessed people next to me get shot, you know, because someone from the other group had pulled out a gun that was supposed to be just like a chain and like bat fight or whatever. Like someone actually pulled out like a pistol and we had to rush this person to the hospital and like things like that were happening that I was like, oh, this is... This is bad. Like, I never envisioned this. And so at a certain point, I, like, reached out to the one person I really trusted was my mom. I was like, what do I do? I want out. And, like, I don't know how to get out. And then I remember even, like, asking someone that I thought I trusted their advice. I think he was, like, 19 or 20, and I was about 14 at the time. And I thought he would give me good advice and understand, you know? He had a newborn, and I expected a different answer. I was like, hey, man, you know, like, I want to, like, finish high school. I want to, like, do other things with my life. And it was super, like, cold what he told me. He was just like, the only way you leave it is dead. And I was just like, oh, (laughs) like, not what I expected to hear. Mm, Okay, like, fuck. 
we're going to take a short break. We'll be back. The scale of climate change can make an individual feel hopelessly small. And Molly Kawahata knows this feeling well. As a former climate advisor to the Obama White House and an alpine climber with dreams of big summits, Molly dedicated her life to taking on seemingly insurmountable challenges. But it's her personal struggle with mental health that gives her a profound understanding of how to harness the power of the mind to create change. The scale of hope follows Molly as she prepares for an expedition in the Alaska Range while working to create a new climate narrative that centers her favorite question, what can I do to help? It's a story about struggle, hope, and what it will take to solve the greatest issue of our time. Go to patagonia.com slash climbing or visit the Patagonia YouTube channel to watch The Scale of Hope, streaming now. Okay, so Lucho's in a gang, and his mom knows. It's not like she just doesn't know her son. They have a good relationship, and she loves him, but she's a busy mama. She told him what she thought and helped where she could. But ultimately, it was going to be up to Lucho to make the executive decision to phase himself out. I mean, she saw me with red rags hanging out of my pocket or only wearing, like, white, red, and black she knew what it was about and you know she would try to tell me and I wasn't listening and so eventually you know I stopped hanging out a lot and I would get questioned for it when I would actually run into some of these folks that I would hang out with at the same time I was doing really poorly at school it's the San Francisco School of the Arts and you either have to audition if you're like a musician or like if you're a visual artist like I was you had to make a portfolio and like kind of show them why you wanted to be in this school and I'd worked really hard to get into the school and I was totally screwing it up by my junior year, they were like, we're going to have to hold you back a grade. You should consider leaving. They didn't want to hold me back and they didn't want me there anymore either. And I was like acing my art class and failing all my other academic classes. And even at the time, I knew it was a big disappointment to my mom and I was pretty disappointed in myself. Um, and I felt like a bad kid. They made me feel like a bad kid. And the school counselor wasn't very supportive. He had decided that he just didn't want me in the school anymore. And I felt that. And so he had suggested I go to this continuation program that was like a block away from here. All the neighborhood gang kids went there and they went in for like three hours a day and they gave them tons of homework that no one ever did. And so if you could get through the semester and just show up, you would get a GED or something at the end of the year. And I knew it wouldn't help me. And I knew it would just put me in a darker path. And I'd be hanging out with all these kids who I was like trying to avoid at this point. I think I told my mom, I was like, if I go there, it's just going to get worse for me. Like, I, I can't go there. And so I ended up going to this other continuation program. And the teacher was just trying to get through his day and like would put movies on and not really engage with the kids. And you could tell the teacher was just over it. And then she heard about this high school program called the Urban Pioneers where they took them into the wilderness and they ran ropes courses and they did volunteer work. And so she's like, you should apply for that. So we went in together and I applied for the following semester. That's where it all changed for me. 
And it was a welcome change. Through volunteer work, Lucho saw the importance of being of service, and that carried well into his adult life. Not only do outdoor education and alternative programs engage kids with community, but they help students develop a sense of place and a civic attitude and behavior. According to a study by the American Institute of Research, students perform better when outdoor education is integrated into the curriculum. The study reports that students experience increased standardized test scores, improved in-school behavior and attendance, and overall enhanced academic achievement. And being outside is just really fucking cool. I could tell from day one that the teacher, he had a lot of love for the students. And he would pick out the bullies early on and like put them in their place and like make sure that everyone felt included and loved. And it was really evident that this guy cared and was trying really hard to get everyone to change in a more positive way. It was something that all the kids saw, you know, and there was this like incredible bond formed between like teacher and student. And it wasn't just like one student and the teacher, it was everyone in the class loved this guy. And it was so cool to see that for the first time as a student. I feel like as kids get older and a little more independent, I think it's a little harder to reach them. And this guy really had the touch, like he knew how to get through to the kids and like make them feel loved. And he knew that a lot of the kids came from different backgrounds, like some of them came from super loving homes, other ones had totally non-existent home life. And he like really made it a point to be their friend and their teacher and a good role model and mentor. He picked those kids out specifically and like would work harder and stop at no end to be that person that they needed in their life. And so he had kind of compiled a team of like other teachers and they basically followed his ideals. So I think it really worked. It was part of the public school system in San Francisco, but they hated it. They didn't like the fact that he was taking these kids out into the wilderness. They thought it was super dangerous. Whenever there would be like school board hearings about like shutting the program down, all his students would show up and like have his back and be like, dude, crossing the street or hanging out on the street corners is is more dangerous than walking through the wilderness for 10 days, you know? But you couldn't convince a lot of like school board members. And eventually they shut the program down because some kids got hurt on a trip. Shortly thereafter, one of his teachers who had worked with him for a few years started up a different program under a different name, and it was kind of exactly like Urban Pioneers. And um, unfortunately, he died on a motorcycle accident. He was like dirt biking, and so other teachers stepped in to like continue his work. Teachers that had worked under Wayne McDonald, who was the founder of the Urban Pioneer program. So they were all connected. They were all kind of the same people who had Wayne's vision. And so I had gone back to staff for Urban Pioneers and for this Get Out and Learn program. They kind of tamed down their wilderness trips. They're not like 12-day backpacking trips anymore. Now they're a little shorter and they don't go off into the wilderness. They go a little more locally to like Point Reyes and stuff like that. I think that was the big issue was taking these kids out for that long. And we would have these solos where the teacher would be like, all right, you kids are like going to get yourself back to base camp. And they stopped doing that. But it was so cool because it was just like, okay, here we are. Like, it's up to us to get back to base camp now and to get back home. It was so rad. I'm glad I got to experience it when it was still like that. Lucho's whole world had suddenly been flipped upside down. Through Outward Bound, he received a scholarship that took him on a 22-day backpacking trip, which in turn introduced him to outdoor rock climbing for the first time. Further proof that hiking is a slippery slope. 
I mean, just seeing the Sierra Crest for the first time and was just like, oh, I just want to be out here. Like, I never knew none of that existed. After that, I started learning about different grades of climbing, and I was like, what's all these numbers? Like, what does it all mean, you know? And a couple of the kids from the program were like, let's go climbing. So we would all throw ourselves at climbs around the Bay Area, and then eventually would go, like, out to Yosemite and try to, like, throw ourselves at the easy climbs there and would epic super hard. And we had, like, the most minimal racks and stuff like that. And we'd pull together, like, the four quick draws and the set of nuts and try to, like, tackle these climbs. <laughs> And um, we didn't know what we were doing, but we were learning, you know? We had tried to do, like, the Nutcracker and had failed multiple times, and this was one of our failure days. And we were walking back, and we saw this Yosemite guide who started the YCA, the Yosemite Climbing Association, Ken Yeager. And he was a Yosemite guide at the time, and he was giving, like, a one-on-one how-to-place protection. And me and my buddy, like, sat down at a rock, like, so we could listen in and, like, kind of get some free beta. And I noticed that he saw us and got louder and projected his voice even more. Oh, it was so cool to tell him this story years later as a friend. It like meant a lot to him. And we learned a little bit that day, you know, of like, oh, constrictions. And like, this is how you place a nut. This is how you place a cam, you know, and it was super cool. And so that was one of my earliest memories. And so I kind of made it a point to like save up some money and take my summer off and spend it up there in Yosemite. It was the year 2000, putzing around Camp 4 looking for like climbing partners. And this kid from Santa Cruz was like, oh, you should come back to the search and rescue site. There's this guy back there, you know, like you and him should like link up and go climb, you know. Cedar just wanted people to blame on his projects. And I was just looking to climb with anybody and learn as much as I could. And so for years, I would just go below cedar and like follow him up anything and had super bad technique but scrap my way up these walls i remember at one point being way up high on higher cathedral rock with him and just looking around and being like i should be scared right now but this is like nowhere near as scary as being in the neighborhood (laughs) i was like this is actually super exciting and rad i remember thinking that it's like oh Like, this is nowhere near as scary as being in the mission, like, at night. I I remember that, and I carried that thought for the longest time. I was part of, like, the Yosemite monkeys that we called ourselves. We were part of this crew that looked up to the stone masters and thought we were the new generation and would sleep in the boulders behind Camp 4 and be there year after year and do the whole stone master routine of being in the valley from, like, spring to fall and then go to Joshua Tree in the winters and climb all the stuff that the stone masters did. And it was some really good times throughout my 20s. And it was always the same crew. And it just felt like so much love and it was like family you know yeah I mean eventually people moved on they got real jobs and not like these like you know gigs just to like keep climbing and stuff like that and people had families and new friends were made and friends were lost and so over the years a lot of it changed but a lot of it's also stayed the same for me it's been really hard to stay away from Yosemite since it changed my life so much um, so many years ago and I love watching the new communities kind of roll in and find the exact same thing that I found years ago it's still there and the whole mentorship thing it's still very much alive and the community is still so strong you know it's like grown a lot but it feel like they get the same awe and impact that you do when when you spend your first few years there 
and like kind of exploring different parts of the park and all that stuff and you know there were a lot of other people along the way I feel like that showed me less climb places like Hetch Hetchy that no one really climbs at you know in different parts of the Sierra and then I felt like most of my friends are out there or like most of my friends were made out in the Sierra and the Eastern Sierra and like I honestly don't have a lot of friends in San Francisco I don't hang out with a lot of people here it's my girlfriend and I and my mom and my sister and other than that I think most of my extended family my friends are like in the Sierra you know I call my climber friends my family because they are I've grown up with them and had so many experiences with them so it's really cool to know the different parts of the park and to have this history there and for me I think I just really love to be able to still climb a lot of the stuff that I used to climb and wonder how long I'll continue to be able to do that. And I love having the community there, you know, ranges from like 20 year olds all the way up to like 60 something year olds, you know, and all of them are my friends and look up to all of them in different ways. And there's so much love. Um, I think the climbing is incredible, but yeah, the community is like such a big part of it at this point. And I think what drives me at this point is still doing the one thing that I think I really found my niche in, in Yosemite was like new roots. I think that was the part of climbing for me instead of just repeating routes for me it was new routing uh, I was able to tap into my creative side the feeling of being the first person on this part of the wall or on this formation has never gone away and feeling like oh I'm the first person to climb this you know and I, at one point I feel like I was doing walls in a day that was kind of the fad when I first arrived in Yosemite was doing stuff in a push how fast can you climb these walls you know and so a lot of it was done like through aid climbing and free climbing a combo and as much as I love wall climbing and vertical camping I think free climbing has always been like at the heart of my climbing and then on top of that like new routing the discovery of places that people don't look at and at a certain point I felt like I had worked really hard at refining that learning from like first ascensionists who have been climbing in Yosemite for like 40 years a friend of mine, Dan McDevitt, who's put up tons of roots in Yosemite for years, learning from him how to like find good roots and to create roots that are really well done. You know, I feel like Cedar and I would just free climb stuff, but not really put in the proper hardware a lot of times, or like we would just be like, we freed it and not bother with thinking about how the second ascent would go. And at a certain point, I started realizing, oh, it makes a big difference. And especially if you plan on having people repeat the route, you want to make it good. And there were other first ascensionists like Sean Jones who like really influenced my way of thinking of how to put up roots too, you know? There was a point in time I had this old school mentality and I was like, the less bolts, the better, you know? And sometimes that's true. Like you find a, a perfect crack line and you don't want to make it into a sport route. But I feel like most of the climbing in Yosemite at this point, a lot of those pure cracks have been done and we're kind of doing the stuff in between. And sometimes that stuff ends up being a lot harder and there's face sections that connect these crack systems. And so instead of making it run out and scary, there's plenty of those routes to do in Yosemite still. 
I feel like modern routes should be put up kind of with a more modern approach. And with so many climbers out there now, especially transitioning from gym to outside, you want to put up routes that people are going to repeat and enjoy and not be scared on. I think most of my routes have been relatively safe, but, you know, there was one in particular on Fifi Buttress, the Romulan Warbird, which is a Dan McDevitt aid route that he told me, you should go and free climb this thing, and it turned out to be an amazing free climb. But back when I freed that thing, I had this mentality of less bolts. And so there's routes like that. You're placing gear behind loose rock on one of the pitches, or you're relying on a pin that's no longer there. You know, things like that. So it doesn't have to be overbolted, but it should be fun and safe. And if it's going to be hard, it should be done well. Things done well take time. Ideas that don't necessarily happen in these moments of aha, but instead slowly over time are sometimes the ones worth pursuing. Lucho's time in the valley juxtaposed with his adolescent years in the streets helps spark an idea that has the power to change the lives of at-risk youth for generations to come. We hope to see it. Years ago, when Misia and I were looking into like starting our own gym, we were kind of like, how are we going to write a business proposal? Neither of us knew what we were doing. She has the background of working at a climbing gym and knowing how it all works financially. And I was a root setter for a number of years and helped build one of the gyms here in San Francisco. So I've seen it go up from an empty shell all the way up to like the walls and the stucco being put on and the first roots being put up. And so I know that we can get it built and the two of us combined mind just need someone else to help well we need many people to help fund it but we need someone to write a really killer business proposal and really get that part off the ground like find the money for it but there would probably be like a co-work space slash non-profit gym slash store like selling used gear for a way discounted price and who knows how it's really going to end up i think in the beginning i was just thinking like a non-profit that doesn't turn anyone away if you want to come in and learn how to set roots like come on in when we're setting roots or you can be a mentor to like younger kids you know and it would just be a cool place for kids to spend their after school and stuff like that especially if they don't really have family that can be there for them either their parents aren't around or if they're working you know and the kids just like feel a little lost and it would give them a little bit more direction I think that's kind of my vision it would be cool to have a lot of kids who wouldn't otherwise ever walk into a gym come in and not get turned away and start climbing you know they don't have to love it but you know some may end up really loving it and taking it a lot further Sometimes, sometimes, I lack belief in myself, bounded by trauma. My problems drowned in despair, this distilled vodka. Do I love me? Despite my flaws, was the first verse. Talking to me and talking to y'all, I'm befuddled. Tiger without his claws, a lion and titan muzzle. Tear myself down in the mirror when only lion rebuttals. Tears of a warrior, out his persona. A firewall surrounding my courage, I'm such a grown-up. But wait, hold up. Did I know all the answers before the questions was posed? Is this all just a test on the step of destiny's door? Made a wrong turn somewhere, but that's where it all had to go to find my path. Maybe my flaws wasn't really flaws at all. Life's ironic. 
You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. And a big thank you to Gnarly Nutrition for supporting this podcast and the messages that we share. Gnarly Nutrition supports a community of vulnerability and equality and tastes like a milkshake without all the crap. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the planet. And to Otsun, innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance. And thanks to Patagonia, not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet.